Monday, September 28th. This is LA Podcast, the uh, only local LA politics podcast. I'm Scott Frazier with Alyssa Walker and Hayes Davenport. How are you guys doing this afternoon? How are you? Good. Listen to that yeah, healthy voice. Yeah, we're worried about healthy. you. Actually, my voice is kind of shredded right now. Can you not tell? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. I, uh, I was sick. Uh, I had the, I mean, we were just talking about it a couple of weeks ago. I had the very fun experience also common now of uh, going back and forth, trying to decide whether or not I just had air quality related mm-hmm. uh, coughing or if I was actually sick, but it seemed like I was getting worse as the air quality was getting better. So I went and got a COVID test and I'm happy to say I'm still COVID negative. So undefeated at this point in time. <laughs> So we do have a guest today. Later in uh, the episode, we have Eunices Hernandez, uh, who is one of the co-chairs of the Yes on J uh, campaign for the November ballot to reallocate uh, funding from uh, the L.A. County General Fund, which includes the law enforcement budget, towards community programs and uh, resources for vulnerable people in L.A. County. That conversation is so great. Please, uh, please listen to that. But first, you channeled your disease energy into the, like, disease the energy. day you were, instead of podcasting, you were posting. Yeah. You posted, as we uh, talked about, uh, the... Uh, limited capacity, how buses were packed, right. even though they're supposed to be at 75% of capacity. Uh, they're like packed to the gills because they have roped off so much of the occupiable area. Mm-hmm. And that uh, post sequence made it into the Metro board meeting this week, which we are going to talk about. But let's start with that. Congratulations, Scott. Yeah, thank you. I, uh, years and years of, of activism, and now no one can say that I have not changed a single vote because I have changed one one person's Just single one. vote. Unfortunately, only one. Well, that's a great but feeling. That was, that, that's uh, okay. And you got credit for it, which was even better. Yeah. Shout out to, to Mike Bonin for actually uh, caring, being the, the sole person on uh, on Metro's board of directors who who cares about the state of the the buses currently um but yeah no that, so that was that was actually what i was i woke up early that morning because i was coughing so much i couldn't sleep and kind of saw the streets blog had been uh tweet, tweeting asking people to post conditions on the buses to send them pictures of crowded bus conditions this is something that that i've been writing about streets blog has been writing about a bunch of other organizations, including ACT LA, have been trying to call attention to as uh, Metro was considering uh, the the service cuts for the year 2020-2021, which they did uh, vote to approve this past week. And uh, we were trying to get people's attention on the onto the fact that bus riders growing in number every day steadily uh, largely comprised of low-income service workers are are being forced to endure longer waits, more crowded conditions, uh, and generally speaking, it's at odds with what the agency is saying publicly, which is that 
it's not safe to be on crowded buses. Uh, there, there, what there is some, uh, there's some, I think, contention on that point in like absolute policy wonk circles uh, because I think the the latest out of places like Tokyo and New York is the air circulation constant opening of doors and things like that on transit is makes it better than other places you can be, for example, in church or at parties with friends or restaurants, things, places where you're actually talking and, and opening your mouth a lot. Um, however, that being said, Metro's policy is that crowded vehicles are bad. The CDC's policy is that crowded vehicles are bad. The LA Department of Public Health's uh, policy is that crowded public transit is bad and that social distancing should be observed. So the question really from advocates, myself included, was how is Metro saying this and also uh, not accounting for how crowded their vehicles actually are? So the, the intention was to, to highlight that and uh, that was picked up by by Director Bonin, fortunately. And and what you uncovered was like a math error. Yeah. Or was it an error, would you even say? Uh, I think in all likelihood, yes. So the, the issue, the specific issue that I was uh, posting about was that uh, some, something that I actually wrote about previously, which was that vehicles are functionally smaller now than they were before COVID. Because if you get on a bus, I've done this several times now, if you get on any Metro bus, uh, the the bus driver's union has an agreement with Metro uh, management that passengers should not be anywhere near the, the bus driver. They're in, every passenger is entering through the rear doors of the vehicle uh, and bus drivers are making cordons to separate themselves from the passengers behind the, the ADA seating area where the wheelchair accessible seats are. Of course, if you uh, if you are a passenger who requires that seating area, they do still allow you to enter through the front doors. But for everybody else uh, entering through the back doors um, and those front area seats uh, somewhere between six to eight of them are cut, mm-hmm. are cut off from the passengers on every including single bus. all the all the standing room up there as well. Yeah. So when Metro is saying that they are doing what they can uh, in the face of the service cuts that they have decided to implement to keep passengers uh, uh, preserve passengers' abilities to distance themselves from one another safely. What it actually turns out to be the case is that they were not taking into account the fact that this is universally the case across their bus fleet, that there are eight fewer seats and um, something maybe like 25 percent less overall area than there than there was on their vehicles before COVID. They weren't taking that into account. They were counting the seats that were not accessible to to the average passenger. And as a result, um, they came out with numbers that were completely false. For example, they said that at the strictest point of the shutdowns on, on board, uh, or sorry, at the strictest point of the shutdowns in LA County back in March and April, that bus loads got as low as 25%. And that's the number of passengers per seats. So if you actually adjust that, uh, because Metro did eventually come out and say that they weren't accounting for the the reduced capacity, then you find out that uh, the lowest that the capacity ever or the lowest that the load ever got was 33%. So one in three seats is being taken. 
And then uh, now they're saying what they're looking for is uh, 75% passenger loads in order to increase service. But in reality, because they aren't calculating it correctly, the, the, the vehicles are far more crowded than they expect and passengers are packed in much more than they expect behind this cordon. And, and maybe uh, you are ending up with vehicles driving around where a lot of people are even having to stand up. And responses to my thread from people who were riding, uh, who are riding the buses every day say that during rush hour, this is a common occurrence at this point. And like, okay, so they, the math was wrong. They go ahead and vote. Um, once again, changing the public engagement rules. So we don't, we go to this board meeting again, whereas last time people had trouble, um, you couldn't make comments on phone. They changed Mm -hmm. it again to make it so you could make comments on phone, but nobody really knew about that ahead of time. So again, we have this mass confusion. A lot of people who want this universal, I would say, um, feedback from riders and advocates saying, please don't do this. And they vote using the wrong numbers and and Bonin brings it up and they still vote to go ahead right. Thank and you. cut Thanks service. anyway. Yeah. And so yeah, that's the only thing way you could solve this issue is like, okay, maybe we could reduce uh capacity even more on these buses to account for how there's like less uh, occupiable space on them and run more to like to allow for more people to actually use the system, but instead we are making cuts. We are running less, and we have really no reason to believe that these cuts will will be restored, and like in the foreseeable future, right? Well, yeah, Scott said Scott said forever, which I well, I, I mean th- this is uh, this is kind of the the experience of of recent history, right? Is that um, the it, it is it's the proverbial ratchet that that goes one direction, um, Laura Nelson excellent LA Times uh, reporter on the, the Metro beat had actually called out in her article about the, the board decision that there were service cuts that were made during the time of the last recession that were never fully reinstated. I think that very much we should expect the same thing to happen here. Before COVID, there were, uh, there were various cuts that were being made to, to bus service anyway. This is a capitulation to um, to basically what what amounts to a, a transit death spiral in in LA if you uh, if you say ridership is down and we're going to lower service to match it actually uh, I think we had recently talked about this as being a favorite talking point of the mayor Eric Garcetti who is also currently the chair of the Metro board of, mm-hmm. of directors we talked about it specifically in relationship to the cooling centers and the clean air breathing centers uh, that the city was implementing during the heat waves and the the poor air quality days that we had recently. It's quoted in Laura Nelson's story saying a very similar thing with respect to bus service. When we see evidence that more people are trying to ride the buses, then you get your service back. Uh, it, that, that's the mentality. And he was actually, it's amazing because that, that, uh, that, statement from him comes mere days after he was lampooned in the onion for for making that comment about uh, homeless people not uh not 
utilizing his uh, Zillow ad clippings to buy themselves houses. So, um, <laughs> so no change there, really. Um, but yes, so Metro went ahead and and did the wrong thing. This is this is a thirteen member body that contains no transit riders. Nobody on the Metro Board of Directors rides transit. I don't think it's uh, even controversial to, to say that. Uh, the CEO of Metro does ride transit, um, or at least he did prior to the, the pandemic. But by and large, the, the leadership of this agency, this $8 billion agency, is devoid of anybody who has a vested stake or, or even an interest, to be frank. Uh, in in the service that they're intended to provide to to Angelinos. And while we're talking about the mayor, if you would like to hear him like give his little speeches about um, how great the city is, it's good to listen to the Metro Board uh, meetings, which are completely devoid from reality because he in the when he you know he's running these meetings. And another thing he said during the meeting this week, also reported by Laura Nelson, was. I am proud to say this agency has never shut down. And she's like, actually, it did shut down during protests. I kind of remember some story about that. Absolutely no warning to the people who relied on transit, which was just comical that he's up there saying that. And then I found it very funny. No, no, no. They didn't shut down. We we were using the buses to transport uh, arrested protesters. This is how you get used to your 20% cuts. Some of the buses are just going to be used to take protesters to jail. There's nothing we can do about it. Another thing I thought was really interesting was a story in The Guardian about how U.S. cities are planning a green recovery after the pandemic. Again, the mayor says, what you'll see after the pandemic is a city that will surprise you. You will still be able to drive a convertible up the coast, still go up Mulholland Drive with the lights laid out like a bed of jewels, but you'll also realize that transit can get you there too, and you can work, eat, and play without getting into a car. I'll say you certainly will be surprised when the buses that you thought were going to come are not going to come when you thought they were coming. I'm not familiar with the bus route that goes down Mulholland Drive. Can someone give me the number on that one? Uh, I also I mean, have a prediction, which is that restored transit funding will be tied to the Olympics and we'll get a nice transit well, system. You got there. Free be ashamed transit. if anything happened to it. Yes, that's right. Next, yeah, next we're year. We're supposed to be also getting free 20 percent cut transit. So I think they should be paying us. At this I, point. I, I'm I, I remain, you know, <laughs> pretty pretty annoyed about the whole thing i i do think uh doesn't have the dispenser the cash dispenser work in the opposite direction the just like card just like gives you uh, just switch money the gears on your and bank it just like a, a 175 oh, comes out when you get on the bus every bus. <laughs> uh, so, so mike bonin put out a, a motion which i believe was passed uh and it specifically tied uh the it actually asked Metro staff to come back and uh, tie increase in service to um, actual uh, benchmarks as far as uh, who was riding the, the buses and who wasn't and to to make further reports about the state of uh, of the system throughout the course of this year and figure mm-hmm. out a way to get us back to pre-COVID levels. Um, I, I, I do remain pretty annoyed about the whole thing. Metro was very, very defensive uh, about, I mean, first saying 
these are not service cuts because we already cut service. And so now we're maintaining the service cuts that we did earlier this year that you didn't have an opportunity to give input on because the Metro board was not meeting at that point in time, uh, which I found to be um, intentionally. What do you expect them to crowd into this like small space? (laughs) <laughs> then, but also, Scott, what you said. Oh, then, then they said that, uh, you know, that they were providing uh, 80% of normal service for 55% of normal ridership. Again, um, indicating that social distancing is not really possible. They further then doubled down on that and said, if we were going to provide enough room for everybody to socially distance, we would have to provide more service than we did before before covid to which you know transit advocates like myself are just kind of like nodding like yes that's correct um and they're saying well you know like that's in an ideal world and we don't live in that world all right this is their this is their job this is the service that they provide this is their responsibility um and i i don't really think that i or 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 other people who actually would like transit to be uh more uh supported by by the infrastructure of, of local government here than it than it ever has been uh, appreciate metro saying that it is fiscally prudent to eviscerate transit funding for operations again we're continuing to to plan the acceleration of big construction projects that the board really enjoys uh, getting to do ribbon ribbon cuttings at and we're planning on expanding freeways. We're, we're doing these things that are unrelated yeah. to, to actual transit operations and in some cases are directly oppositional to it. Mowing down homes for two freeway expansion projects that are, are now being explored. Um, we have to talk in more detail at some point about how to stop that from happening. We also have to talk in more detail about the other stuff with wheels news this week, which is that uh, Gavin Newsom announced that California is phasing out the internal combustion engine by 2035. There's been some writing about this. I haven't read all of it. It seems like certainly more positive than not doing it, but is it enough? Is just stopping the sale of these cars in 2035 when many will still be on the road for long after that is that quick enough Alyssa what do you what have you been seeing on this well just remember that he also promised us that 3.5 million homes would be built um, (laughs) by 2025 Alyssa Canyon was gonna be shut down he did he did cancel those fracking permits this week too so and he said that he would he heavily implied that he would be amenable to if the legislature decided to ban fracking, that he would go with yes. it. We have a pretty. And there was pro- a bill announced. Yeah. Yes. A, a lot of uh, state legislators were like, great, let's do this. Let's ban fracking. Uh, and I, it d- does remain to be seen whether that will actually get passed because there are a lot of big oil Democrats in the California state house. Yeah. He's also, maybe, I mean, maybe yeah. he'll also have an executive order banning sales of the notorious Amy Coney Barrett t-shirts. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's disrespectful to the memory of the notorious RPG. So let's talk about the, the news this week in uh, the protest activity. There have been, in the aftermath of Breonna Taylor's killers uh, not being charged with anything related to her 
killing in, in Louisville um, actually came out today. I haven't seen the footage yet, but a lot of it was filmed apparently, which the um, Louisville uh, Police Department said that it was not. So there is probably more news about this by the time this episode comes out. A lot of people have been protesting, particularly in West Hollywood, which is L.A. Sheriff's Department uh, jurisdiction. There are a lot of really upsetting uh, clips of deputies beating up protesters. One uses a shield to kind of smash a, a pin down uh, protester in the leg. Uh, we've also seen in Hollywood a car driving through a crowd of protesters really, and actually running someone over. Which on, on um, a national level seems like it's almost a it's daily a lot. occurrence There's a now. lot of them this, weekend, this last week, yeah. But here LAPD found the driver and released them uh, on their own uh, recognizance. We're not sure whether charges will, will ever be filed, but that, uh, that person uh, was not arrested. And there was an incident last night where somebody ran into the uh, police department, like near the, the, the Harbor division. Um, like on, the, on foot. Yes. 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 Physically ran inside attacked a desk officer, took their gun and fired three shots. Uh, but, and initially people were saying that the officer had been shot, but that turned out not to have happened. Um, the, the, the officer did seek medical treatment. Oh, but then the, this person stole a police car yeah. and took off with it. But then they caught the, uh, the person and that person is in custody. But the, Desk officer ended up with bumps and bruises, apparently. Uh, I'm glad everyone is okay. That's a good thing. I I continue to wonder why someone at the front desk of the police department has a gun to be taken. But everyone who works, like the vast majority of people that work uh, administrative jobs at the LAPD are armed officers. But it's, I mean, what else is there to say about that? It's good that um, nobody got hurt. Seriously. Well, but the fact that, that well, you said that initially it was reported that right. he had been shot and yes. council member Joe Biscano tweeted like, I'm going to the hospital, police officer down. I think the right. tweet's been deleted, but very right. like very specifically, like he, the officer was grazed by a bullet on the side of his head, like very specific wrong information that was then um, right. put yeah. out by Councilmember Buscaino, who represents the area in which the Harbor Station is located, also a former LAPD officer, uh, as we've mentioned many times here. But um, but very, very. And as has he. As has he. Yes. Uh, very specific, very incorrect information. The I didn't even see the thing about him having fired three shots. I just saw that the watch commander had fired at the person who took the the gun. So. Oh, so maybe that's a uh, me misreading the them saying three shots were fired. Yeah, uh, and not attribute as always happens, not attributing the firing to one person or another. Yeah, so who knows? Uh, at, yeah, it's who not knows? like there's cameras at those police <laughs> right. stations. Uh, at this, but I mean, but I, I think it's it like you're saying. It's good everybody is safe. But potentially this could have gone very differently. And the actual description that went out from LAPD to a wire received by uh, LA Sheriff's Departments was that a man had 
come into the police station and shot one of their officers. So who knows what happens if the L.A. Sheriff's Department gets him first, right? Like that they're operating yeah. on completely false and, and incorrect information. So it, it's... I do want to say one yeah. thing about uh, the coverage. I did see a lot of outlets saying, or like from a lot of different places saying that uh, this is the result, implying that this is the result of uh, increased negative sentiment against law enforcement. Uh-huh. What happened here? Uh, we have no idea whether or not that this is related to that at all. Right. We don't know what this person's intentions were. And I always think it's a little bit dangerous um, in, to apply motivations to like a protest movement, like to connect it to that uh, when we have no information on that yeah. whatsoever. We're, and real legitimate journalists are, are doing that. We are seeing, I, in my opinion, something very similar to what was happening in particular in, in Europe uh, a couple years ago, maybe, you know, in the, in the time of like 2015, 2016, particularly in the wake of like the Bataclan uh, mass shooting in, in Paris that, news outlets would pick up on a story really intensely, uh, almost with the morbid expectation that it would be uh, some sort of terror cell. Like I remember that there would be like some, somebody got stabbed in the tube in London and it was like, is this religious terrorism? Um, And that I feel like is what exactly what we're seeing here, that stories are being picked up on with that intensity because the, because that is part of the narrative that is attempting to be made here and and not just by media, but also by the police who, as we've talked about, have have, uh, a vested interest in, in portraying these events a certain way before any of the facts could possibly be known. Same thing with the deputies, the sheriff's deputies who were shot in Compton a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we still don't know yeah. what that was about, right. but that was immediately turned into, well, this is what happens when you speak negatively about law enforcement. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Uh, it's the uh, Day of Atonement. It's Yom Kippur. The L.A. Times is taking is this. That what the timing is? I didn't even put that together. Wow. Okay, I, yeah. I doubt it. I have absolutely no idea. Well... Uh, the L.A. Times is publishing a, a pretty significant mea culpa uh, about a century plus long legacy of uh, racism, sometimes veiled, sometimes very explicit, dating back to and this was an editorial in the L.A. Times uh, from today, Sunday dating back to the founding of the paper and its leadership, certainly. And in particular, the audience that from the beginning they were trying to appeal to in Los Angeles, beginning with Midwestern transplants rather than Southern transplants. It's always, the, it's always the Midwestern right? transplants that you have to blame here. The Iowans that, yeah. uh, that yeah. uh, settled here. Uh, at some point to, cause they had, um, uh, dropsy or whatever that was good for the, uh, that the air was good for. Um, and then later white suburbanites who were, uh, uh, their panic about, uh, civil unrest in black neighborhoods and a huge incursion, of Central American immigrants, they the belief that that sold papers and that that's primarily who they were appealing to. 
It is an extension of a reckoning that they've been doing internally, which God, that was this week too. the story that they, they, they published um, by Meg James and Daniel Hernandez about the number of LA times uh, uh, people in leadership uh, who have been fired as a result of investigations over abuse uh, mm-hmm. and harassment and all kinds of problems. It's great that they're looking at themselves and it is, it didn't just come about on their own in terms of like leadership and ownership and management. It came about because the reporters said, you got to fucking deal with this and like really sat them down, read them the riot act and said like, this place has huge problems that you need to account for. That is the only reason this is happening is because the reporters stood up. But both of these documents I think are really worth reading. And I would also, you should also read, I think like kind of the most amazing, we'll, we'll talk more about the editorial board in a second, but I think really the, one of the most like gutting stories and all these stories are topped with the, the art of the original stories from like the seventies, which you read these headlines and how people of color are, are discussed in our city. And then you just look at it and, and just, it, it just blows your mind that this was occurring, you know, when I was alive in, in some cases, but there's a really great story from Greg Braxton, who was, um, a black writer for the paper. And I don't even want to ruin it for you, but just, mm-hmm. you just have to read it to see how, what he faced as someone who was trying to tell, trying to get the story out that we all know now at a time when um, the paper, like you said, was catering to like wealthy suburbanites, white suburbanites who had uh, fleeing the city, you know, and who were af- afraid of, of being here. I feel like, the, I mean, there's, that hasn't changed. Like that, that is still the audience yeah. that they're catering to. That's a good next. segue. That's a great <laughs> yeah. segue. Let's get into yeah. that. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I mean. just, I, I do, I do appreciate the, the work that the, the, well, we don't know if it's changed. I mean, the story, this editorial only came out like a few hours ago. So maybe yeah. it maybe will they, be different. Uh, maybe it's changed of, by now. As of, yeah. uh, Monday, September 28th, they are no longer focusing their journalism at white suburbanites. Uh, let right. the record show. Um, but I, I do appreciate the, the reporters, uh, many of whom do incredible work uh, at, a, at the LA Times and, and uh, whom I'm, I'm you know, proud to have the opportunity to read the work of uh, for, for standing up to management of various regimes uh, over the course of the past uh, however many years. And trying to make changes at the LA Times. Um, that being said, you know when I when I read this article, I do feel like it is um, painting this as a historical problem as opposed to a uh, a current and ongoing problem. Obviously, they they are saying you know we're, they're they're looking for the the path forward, but most of what's in there doesn't seem to me like it is distinctive from what the LA Times has said in in years past. And I, and I feel like the editorial actually acknowledges that insofar as it brings up efforts in the 60s following the, the Watts riots, uh, in the 80s during the height of the crack epidemic, uh, during the 90s after the Rodney King riots, 
um, and, you know, into the modern era, era where they did different initiatives that were aimed to, in their words that they used in, in conclusion, to redouble their uh, their efforts to focus on black and brown Los Angeles. Um, and then they kind of mention in the, the editorial that each of those kind of petered out due to lack of institutional investment in keeping them going. They, they were basically just token efforts to... Um, to to sort of make it seem like they were more committed to this than they were. So I, I deeply question, you know, what what's different this time as opposed to any of the previous times that they've said that they were doing this and then not followed through. It's nice to make a, a, a splashy debut and say that this is a new thing that we care about now. But, um, you know, the, the evidence will really bear that out. And I do, I, I have to say, like, there, there was one particular phrasing in there that I thought was very strange. And I, I uh, posted on Twitter, which was that in the editorial, they said that an organization should not be defined by its failures, which I feel like is a kind of a core precept of journalism <laughs> that, um, right. that you are actually defining some organizations uh, by yeah. their failures. Um, uh, so I thought that was interesting. Um, and I, I know, obviously, that the, the, the people who have been behind this push at the LA Times don't think that this begins or, or ends here. But, um, but uh, right. as a black reader, I'm, I'm curious to see what, what, if anything, changes. So if we, I think we, if we want to look at that, and they did say that this would be like a three-part series. So maybe, Scott, they'll address more of your concerns and the, you know, of what you were just talking about um, in these next few installments. I don't yeah. know if they come on all it's been, the it's different been a big week. Keep for your me subscription already. because this yeah, is I mean. this is behind the paywall. <laughs> this is behind the paywall right. as well. So like right. so, stay so tuned. To look at the editorial board, you have and and there were some um composites shared uh to social media in light of some endorsements that came out this week and we will talk about those in a minute. But you have six of nine people are white. You have only one Latinx person on the editorial board. And most of the people, I'm just judging by their hair color, are older. Mm-hmm. In pictures and that are not new, necessarily. In pictures that have been <laughs> that are not current pictures. And at least two people, it doesn't say in everybody's bios, but one person lives in Washington, D.C., and one person lives in Irvine. Yeah, That, to me, creates... Not not only like an unreliable narrator situation for anything that we are to be told about a reckoning with race, but also really got me to look back through the editorials that they had written in recent weeks. Yeah. I just started going through them. And for example, I'll just give you a few tastings of just some headlines and, you know, we'll talk about a few, but like. Just this week about this Supreme Court decision that Scott just talked about, Amy Coney Barrett is qualified for the Supreme Court but should not be confirmed. This story is not really on the side of the uh, argument (laughs) that you would want to be making about this very consequential decision at this moment in time. Here's another one. Fire-prone brush is no place for homeless people to camp. Mm-hmm. They should be evacuated again. Not Ugh. really getting at the heart of the issue here. Some good endorsements, some uh, f- fine things to to say, uh, and then this really puzzling one. We'll talk. We'll talk about some. Uh, we'll talk about some. Uh, some of the endorsements, but I was really puzzled by this editorial about 
I'm not even sure what it was about, but it, it, the name of it is Villanueva is the best advertisement for muscular sheriff oversight. Mm. And there was one line in here that was immensely troubling at the very end, um, talking about, I think like, I, I don't even, maybe you can explain this to me better, but it says Villanueva is fast becoming, we are sad to say the best advertisement for the radical unwise yet because of his performance, understandable desire expressed by many protesters to defund and abolish law enforcement. Surely Villanueva won't force LA County to consider that. Will he? Wait, I'm sorry. That, that's three sentences, right? How many different hands do you think? <laughs> the, sorry, the radical, unwise, yet parenthetical, yeah. because of his conduct. Oh, yeah, the parenthetical, don't forget. Understandable. It, it, <laughs> they really did not have a... Um, I mean, this was a journey. Yeah, I like exactly. had to read this paragraph like 10 times like out to of be breath. like, are we doing this? But this is what, you know, what, what we're coming back to. And we've pointed out Yes, there are problems with um, like the newsroom covering the protests, for example, this summer. Yeah. You know, Hayes, Hayes got a headline changed, I think, by talking about it on Twitter. Um, and they're, they, you know, they're really aware of these things. But then we have this editorial board, which I don't think is really in step with the conversations that we are actually having in the city. No, I want to point out a lot of them live in other cities, right. other counties. And the head of the editorial board, Sewell Chan, is new to Los Angeles. I think he just celebrated his two-year anniversary of living here. He was relocated from New York when he worked for the New York Times to run the editorial board, which uh, I don't think is quite enough time to develop like a rich depth of knowledge about the the city where you uh, live, especially because you're also paying attention. To, they write about national issues all the time. They're, they're writing about Amy Coney Barrett. Like, they're... There are some specialists in local politics, but not it's not comprehensive there, I don't think. The thing about measured like uh, about about Villanueva and this like well, surely they won't consider defunding the police. We are going to talk about in this episode a ballot measure that the supervisors put on the ballot to significantly defund law enforcement. Right. Not only will they consider it, they did and they are. Also, and also, so is everyone else in the county. Uh, I mean, worth pointing out when they say that uh, Sheriff Villanueva is the the best argument for muscular police oversight. We did that. This is mean. We passed. We yeah. passed police oversight, and the the response was he decided to ignore that it exists. He's been telling people that. Uh, that it's not constitutional, which I mean, I, I know civics education is typically lacking in this country, but it's not really up to the sheriff of L.A. County to make that determination uh, for himself. Uh, he has done so. So, I mean, the question of calling the the only actual oversight that directly exists, which is the the power of the purse that that is controlled by yeah. the the board of supervisors. Uh, making direct cuts to the sheriff's department, it, it, calling it unwise, is um, is a remarkable position for the editorial board to stake out. But um, but they do that. Well, they do this very uh, common thing, which is they elide defund and abolish. So they like when people say like def like decrease the police budget, defund the police. They say so. You want to abolish the police right now, tomorrow? That seems unwise. Right. Like. Uh, 
there's no nuance offered to the very wide range of suggestions that are being made around reducing the funding and presence of law enforcement in our communities right now. It is all one big uh, chunk of radicalism that wants uh, every police officer and sheriff's deputy to vanish into thin air tomorrow. That's the extent of the nuance that the, that the editorial board of the LA times is giving this movement right now. There is definitely, it's a very common, I think sort of bad faith read of police abolitionism. Um, and you know, again, this is kind of where it becomes difficult to suss out the difference between what I would call an empty sort of self-flagellation of white guilt and mm-hmm. saying like, uh, oh, we were, we used to be so inconsiderate to uh, black people or wasn't that weird when we said that <laughs> it was good that the Navy taught a lesson to Mexican teenagers on the East side during the Zoot Suit riot, right? As opposed to actually addressing the current framing of these, these issues. And I would say that it is very much the responsibility of uh, an editorial board in this day and age in one of the, the nation's largest and most diverse areas to uh, meaningfully engage with uh, mm-hmm. the, the philosophy of abolitionism you know, uh, does that mean that they have to or even uh, even budget reduction? I want to say like the whole spectrum of uh, right. policy pass on here right. is, is effectively being ruled out. This isn't this is an important I, this is an important ideology. They should be versed in it enough to sure. speak in a sophisticated way about it. Does that mean that they need to be leading the the parade for abolitionism? Uh, that's probably too much to expect of, of this LA times, of course, but, um, but they should know what they're talking about. I will say all you have to do is attend a a black lives matter March or rally or whatever. And they will tell you quite plainly when we say defund the police, we mean abolish the police, but knowing what police abolitionism is, is something of a prerequisite uh, uh, to being able to speak in an intelligent way about it. If you if you don't care about doing that, if really all you want to do is, again, sell papers to suburbanites who hear police abolition and think exactly what you said, hey, is just police disappearing their uniforms mm-hmm. left in a pile on the ground, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, then you can do that. But it's not actually a, a meaningful engagement with what uh, with what the protesters are looking for. I do want to say that um, the op-ed department has made uh, in re- very recent and somewhat recent uh, months some great hires. Uh, Erica Smith is an excellent, excellent uh, opinion writer, uh, a columnist, uh, and they just moved Gustavo Ariano over to be a columnist as well. Uh, they are very, very good contributors to that section. Um, let's talk about these endorsements uh, I was a little surprised. So we, we talked about in the primary, the LA Times endorsed basically every incumbent in this in the city that these same people completely fucked up. They were just like, let's let's run it back. Let's do it again. Except for John Lee, who's a who's a Republican and had only been in office for like six months. So maybe if he'd been in office longer and had a chance to learn and grow experience, maybe they would have endorsed him, too. I thought that people would just assume, as I did that in the runoff in the general they would do the same thing 
which they did. They endorsed Mark Ridley Thomas, and just like last time in the primary, they <laughs> wrote a very mean endorsement of him, talking about <laughs> how he's very difficult to work with and has these weird scandals like piled up and can only run for, can only be there for one term, so has no opportunity to do anything that meaningful. But they were like, great, let's do this. Uh, and but then also they endorsed uh, David Rue, uh, the incumbent in Council District Four, against Nithya Raman, who they also endorsed in the primary. But I, people really did react very strongly to this endorsement, and I think uh, a lot of that was how it was written, the language of this text. Alyssa, do you want to talk about that? All I'll say is that. If you if you open it up on your phone and there was no headline and no photo, you would have thought until you got to like more than halfway through that it was endorsing Nithia. And I I went through it and you only take out one paragraph. It was the one where they actually say we're endorsing him. And it actually reads of an endorsement of her. And the very it, it's mostly about her. It's mostly <laughs> about her positions. It's mostly about what she's done and why it's appropriate for this moment, quote unquote, like why, why her campaign is kind of meeting the conversations that are being uh, made in the city and in the country at this time. And then at the very end, it's like, she is thoughtful and detail oriented. She has lengthy policy platforms with ideas that seem like political non-starters a few months ago. Rue and other council members would do well to consider her proposals. And that's the end of it. So doesn't that actually mean if someone has pushed your candidate so far to the left that they have changed the way that they are campaigning, which is true, which is what has happened with Rue, that you should actually vote for the person who is doing the pushing, not the person who is being pushed? I mean, I saw, I, I thought the, the I was bedridden when, when this editorial dropped, but I did feel like one of the, the best rebuttals to this is that Somebody on Twitter rightly called out that they were basically saying Nithya's got great ideas and you should vote for a man to implement them for her. And like that just seems so retrograde. But that that is essentially what the editorial says. Give David Rue, yes. give David Rue a chance, give David a chance to enact Nithya's vision for the city. Yes. Sophie Strauss, a Nithya supporter, had a good uh, take on it, which was that they did a the LA Times basically did a dual endorsement like the New York Times did for the Democratic nomination. But in this case, it was Nithya's brain in David Rue's body. They were just. <laughs> I mean, but there's not like you said, like they do these like mean editorials. And I think that you said that too, Scott, about the last round where they they point out all the flaws and they don't like really say that they wholeheartedly endorsed them but this one had nothing redeeming whatsoever in it they i mean said it he didn't... deserves high marks for like building housing and shelter for people who are homeless and then the next section the next sentence they yeah. say that he didn't meet his pledge on yeah. the number of units that he would approve right and, and then in the next paragraph it says nithya has great ideas for, for how to building change affordable, affordable housing, housing. Yeah, they say uh, they say that he yeah. deserves credit for willingness to change, i.e., willingness to listen to his, his listening. Yeah, listening. <laughs> willingness to not even. But the thing is, like, listening to your opponent is, uh, I think, um, giving him too much credit. It's listening. It's uh, yeah. it's adopting wholesale 
It's Apl- stealing. Apl- yeah. Appropriation. It's, yeah. It's, you know what? Like the thing is, politicians can move on on issues. But I I, I have said and I will continue to say that I, I believe what what is happening here is you have an option between Nithya Raman A and Nithya Raman B, and you're going to get home after election day. And uh, one of them, like uh, 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 Mogwai after midnight, is going to yeah. turn into David Rue, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is it, it's it's a ploy. It's it's not it's it's like right. if this were in earnest in some way, um, then it would be a, a, a good thing. But I mean, and Nithya has said numerous times, I'm happy to have these ideas get more currency. But I think uh, the eagerness with which he has wholesale just said, I am Nithya Raman is, is an indication that um, he doesn't, he just is trying to get through election day and then we'll go back to doing uh, what he got elected to do, which is not just right. that he is her, but that he always has been her. Uh, with no acknowledgement of the massive evolution he seems to have experienced on his policy positions, like month to month, they have changed right. really significantly. But he, he he lies about that, even to the, the 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 L.A. Times reporters who's reporting this editorial linked to where it's a, like he says that he's always been in favor of reducing the LAPD budget. And that same article uh, exposes that as a lie, that he could provide no evidence that he had ever spoken out about that in any form. Right. And we had this we had this candidate forum, which kind of this endorsement bled into. It was a, the endorsement right before. It was right before. Forum. Yes. Candidate so forum. It was, it was it kind of uh, put all the issues in stark relief because you had this um, you could really see as entertainment, like how much of what he was saying was actually what Nithya had been saying over the last few months, including issues of police defunding, which he got called out on publicly on Twitter, which was just. Yeah. So So let's talk about that. Uh, (laughs) This was the Sherman Oaks neighborhood council meeting. David Rue at this meeting said straight up that Nithya wants to uh, reduce the LAPD budget by 98%. Something that she has never said, never even has actually made her positions on this very clear. So she has like a a 40 page transforming public safety document on her website that is public and that anyone can read. And where is his? And he does not have. Well, he has a few bullets. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah. So her policy says that what she wants to do is find out how much it costs to maintain violent crime response in Los Angeles. Like that the city should maintain the ability to when there's a violent threat, we can have uh, emergency services, armed police going and responding to that threat. How much does that cost? What would, what does it take to provide that? And then reallocating the vast amounts of unnecessary armed response that we're doing that now right now toward other systems that can reduce crime more effectively and don't have the risk of violence and police brutality that happens so frequently today. That is her position. She doesn't have like a percentage of the LAPD budget that like needs to be cut or whatever. Like she has an idea of what our public safety system should look like, but we can't know exactly how the budget should be allocated because we don't know how much these different services are costing right now. There is no transparency around that uh, in the police department. 
That's her position. The idea that she wants to cut the LAPD budget by 98% is a lie, and it's fear-mongering to white homeowners. And it's taking her support of Black Lives Matter and trying to use it against her. Yeah. And in uh, uh, like you're saying, uh, in a in a forum specifically uh, where it will play to white homeowners fears, uh, whereas David Rue himself was then subsequently called out by Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and Dr. Melina Abdullah, uh, one of the leaders of that movement here locally uh, for having met with Black Lives Matter privately and uh, or spoken to them privately about setting up a meeting and yes, in order to indicate his support for the People's Budget LA, which um, is apparently the source of the numbers, which he then used uh, apparently to try and and smear Nithia with. So, I mean, again, uh, a, a look at the brazen sort of dishonesty of David Rue's adopted, uh, you know, progressive, if you want to call it that, uh, positions yeah. that that he's sort of wearing like a like a little Halloween costume come November. A very like mint green and brick red Halloween yeah, costume, come. which is the his campaign colors, which are kind of gory if you think of it. They do look like <laughs> that's right zombie. It's kind of like Frankenstein green and like blood mint mint green and, and dried blood, blood red, right? red yeah it's like yeah. But let's make this like i do want to like make this connection <laughs> yeah. clear let's draw the line sure. from black lives matter and people's budget put together a survey that showed that uh 2% of respondents like their 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 budget priorities were in law enforcement Nithya support has been very supportive of Black Lives Matter and people's budgets efforts so far to transform public safety in Los Angeles. David Rue accuses Nithya of wanting to cut the LAPD budget by 98 percent. He is saying that Black Lives Matter and people's budget are a radical group that is not to be trusted or paid attention to. That is there is no other way to yeah. interpret that. It is one step. He is actively demonizing Black Lives yes. Matter and people's budget right now in this moment while saying putting on his website after the protest him marching with black leaders all right it is completely fraudulent go ahead Alyssa. so also at that same forum uh david rue said that um nithia founded a um homelessness nonprofit, and the goal of that nonprofit was not to end homelessness and I just want wanted to quickly um, put that to you, Hayes, as a member of this nonprofit. Yeah. So now I'm like, what happened? This has made things so frustrating and difficult for me because I am involved in Sela. I donate a huge amount of my time as a volunteer to helping Nithya win. Sela is not a has not endorsed Nithya in any way, shape, or form. I help out Nithya as an individual, not as someone who participates in Sela work at all. And I don't even know from what perspective I'm even allowed to talk about this. But what he's doing there is taking a quote from Sila's website out of context where the, the, the mission statement talks about how Sila is a neighborhood group and is not really addressing systemic homelessness. Although in more recent years, they have kind of been forced into that position. Yeah. But is like addressing this at the neighborhood level, not like the state or city or county or whatever. And he's taking that quote out of context to suggest that Sela is fine with homelessness and is essentially just providing services for people who are homeless to make homelessness a little more comfortable 
for them uh, while it continues ad infinitum the way and which we're fine with. That is the implication. It is also trading off fears of white homeowners that increased services lead to more homelessness, that it's coddling people on the street, uh, and that what we really need to do is show some tough love, arrest more people, take more people forcibly into uh, like mental health care, uh, and just like pull as many people off the street as, as possible and not provide services which are counterproductive. He is fanning the flames of this uh, really, really intense debate that is happening in Los Angeles right now. Once again, on the side of white suburban panic. Uh, and so this is this is the um, the movement back. Right. So he spent all this time trying to close the gap between him and Nithya in terms of values. But you can see that nobody is buying that. So now he needs his, uh, the base back. Now he needs the 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 white suburban, more conservative voters uh, to, to get back on the team. And so that's what he's doing. He's painting Nithya as a radical based on completely false statements, lies, straight yeah. up lies. Yeah. Uh, but that shows that Nithya is doing well and it showed up in her fundraising. She, despite not taking any corporate donations, uh, outraised David Rue has outraised David Rue in the general. Uh, but that doesn't include pack money. He has about 200 grand, uh, being spent on his behalf in outside spending. Uh, the, let's get into this interview. Uh, which I'm so excited for. This is an incredible, incredible uh, conversation uh, that we're having about another hugely important thing on the November ballot. Let's go to our interview with Eunices Hernandez from the Yes on Measure J campaign right now. All right, we have an election coming up in... What? Yeah, believe it or not. This is the year of an election. Uh, it's coming up, Hayes. You better get ready. Oh, my Actually, God. Actually, Don't say this year. Oh, start- I got so much <laughs> to do. How many, before, how many elections do you think we've covered in the two years that we've been doing this show? God, a lot more I than mean, we will going ten? forward. Ten? ten? That's true. Do you think ten? I think that might be realistic. It's, it's been a lot. Anyway, there's another one. <sighs> Alyssa, you just cursed us with so many special elections. No, we can't have any more. We can't. We're not doing that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) No more special elections. Well, this one is really important in case you haven't heard. Um, And I think this is what we're going to talk about today is maybe one of the most important or becoming one of the most important um, uh, ballot measures that we are going to be deciding. Um, We're going to be talking to Anisis Hernandez, who is the co-chair for the Yes on J campaign, co-executive director for La Defensa, an organization whose mission is to decarcerate the largest jail population in the United States. That would be us here in L.A. County. Mm -hmm. And then uh, also she's part of the Justice L.A coalition, um, which is one of my favorite Twitter, Twitter follows, um, always on top of the latest, uh, that you need to know with the various, uh, 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 bad behavior of our, uh, local elected, I mean, a local elected and law official law enforcement officials. Um, so welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Let's get into it. We have so many questions. 
But I think it would be just great to start with the sort of broader context of Yes on Jay, how it came about, what it does. Great. So uh, I'm going to start off on how it came about and then I'll get into what it actually does with the nitty gritty of it. So Measure J is built off the work that's been done in L.A. County for over a decade, you could say decades, around stopping jail expansion and demanding that we invest in the services and, you know, housing and all the things that know make our communities thrive. Folks think that, you know, these calls for jobs, for supportive services, mental health services are new when they're not. They've been the same demands that we've had for, for like I've said, decades now. And it builds off really the work of Black Lives Matter that they've done for over seven years and actually them beginning the calls to defund the police. It's come off all the work in L.A. County to really move the legislative body to, you know, away from like jail expansion and into alternatives to incarceration. We've built uh, what's called the, J- the Care First Jails Last Report with L.A. County last year that has over 115 recommendations on what the county could do to keep our people, you know, out of the jails, out of the ERs, and actually keep law enforcement away from our most vulnerable folks. So it builds off a lot of work, a lot of sweat, and intergenerational, you know, organizing uh, for folks in L.A. County in particular. And what Measure J does is that it moves 10% of funds that are located in a general fund where our property taxes go to. And when you buy things locally, it's locally generated tax funds that go into this bucket. It's about $8.8 billion right now. It would just move 10% of that into two buckets, community reinvestment and alternatives to incarceration. I, I, and if you want me to go more into it, I can't. But there's a couple of special caveats that I hope we can talk about moving forward. Great. So that $8.8 billion also includes all funding for the sheriff's department is that uh or, or not even all of it <laughs> not She's even like, all no. of it <laughs> in la county you know just that 8.8 billion dollar bucket just to give you a frame is larger than la cities right larger than their yep. budget and so the sheriff out of the entire la county budget they get close to a billion dollars and so this okay. is nothing this is like uh crumbs to their department essentially uh, most of it uh, goes to actually running some of the things within the county. And then a part of it, though, 43% of this $8.8 billion, uh, goes to the traditional system of injustice uh, from the sheriffs all the way up to the courts and everybody in between. So it takes the 10% out of that $8.8 billion bucket proportionally. So t- basically, essentially 10% of the sheriff's department budget would be reallocated to these other uh, services. No, actually, no. what it is is that it's just 10% in general of what's in that 8.8 okay. billion bucket. In the implementation process, we get to decide how, oh. where that money comes from. And in the in the measure, there's actually a line around an inclusive and transparent implementation process mm-hmm. so that labor ourselves could be at the table to push the board like, yeah, we need to invest in these programs. And maybe how do we figure out where to pull the money from is where we can also support You'd be surprised. Not a, not a lot of people are like budget experts. So when when people say you could just lobby the board to make them fund these things that you want, what do people think we've been doing? You know, but it's just yeah, it's right. not easy. It's a really heavy lift. Absolutely. I mean, um, having said that, it does seem like uh, organizations like yours, like La Defensa, have had a greater degree of success with the board of supervisors than with some other uh, law enforcement funding bodies here locally. Uh, I'm curious if you could talk maybe a bit as one of the co-chairs of this Yes, uh, yes on Jay campaign about how, uh, how Jay came to be on the ballot and what it looked like to, to fight and push to get it there. Great. Thank you for that. So as you know, really to get a measure on the ballot, you have to get signatures, right? 
There's that. Mm-hmm. What's one of the ways? And it costs a lot of money, millions of dollars to collect them. Or you can go through the legislative route. So you can actually get the board uh, to put a measure on the ballot just to get the state legislator. You can collect like you can collect signatures for a state proposition or the state legislator can put something on the ballot. So what we did is, you know, we've been building with the Board of Supervisors towards this um, towards the roadmap of care first. And really, how do we build that out? How do we build out the alternatives? So, like I mentioned, they want the, the county Board of Supervisors all the way to this one that we've had now has been moving towards building two new jails. Um, luckily, though, we've been able to create a coalition that's made of folks who are academics, folks who have been directly impacted and led by the loved ones and people who have been directly impacted. That, over the course of over two years, building relationships with the board, uh, proving to the board that, look, what we're doing right now, investing in two new jails, is not the way to go, especially when you have over 5,000 people in there who have been identified that could be better served in the community if we actually built out those services. When we know that over 7,000 people are in the L.A. County jail system because they simply cannot pay to get out, they haven't even been convicted. And so also recognizing that, you know, uh, black folks in our communities make up eight to nine percent of the general population, but over 30 percent of the people in the jails, like you after stacking these things over and on top of each other, like you could not deny that investing in two new jails was completely antithetical to protecting and supporting all the communities in L.A. County. Uh, That got us to, uh, you know, this year with the global pandemic, we were able to, you know, present the alternatives to incarceration report the care for his jails last but it felt like, and I don't know how it felt for y'all, but it just feels like it's like weekly videos of people getting harmed by police station mm-hmm. violence, like murdered in front of us. But also like people who are hurt, who, you know, their loved ones call 911 for help and said they got law enforcement. It's not like one or two. It's like, especially when we're stuck at home, what's felt like a repeated weekly kind of thing. And so that really created the political landscape plus all the racial and, 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 you know, racist things happening in front of us, like created the landscape to move something like this forward. It wasn't easy, but I will say it's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen legislative wise, because, you know, the board of supervisors had a vote for this three times. The first time they had a vote to actually push county council to draft language. The second right. vote was to approve the language. And the third was to actually put it on the ballot. So it happened within three weeks. It also happened in the last three weeks that something like this could have happened, like on the last yeah. day, like a few days before the last day. So, I mean, I, I, I can't even wrap my mind around it. It's like one of the most it was intense, though, because we had to do a lot of a lot of outreach and even more convincing, getting psychiatric doctors to meet with the board for them to understand the importance of community based resources. So it's a lot, but it's built on a lot of work that has been done, you know, the last few years in L.A. County. And you I mean, you really see. The, the way that the like you're talking about having to take three separate votes to get this measure on on the ballot, you see the way that, that plays out, particularly uh, in in a conservative media ecosystem online. And we have mm-hmm. a, a sheriff now in Alex Villanueva who's proven very adept in uh, tapping into the the anger of uh, of anti defund the police uh, conservatives online. Um, I wonder if you consider him. Sort of like an ally and getting uh, and getting the board of supervisors on board with a, a measure <laughs> like this, but um, I, I really I, I'm I'm so impressed with with the work that you all have done. You mentioned, um, of course, the the board of supervisors. Uh, our listeners may remember that there there were two separate uh, two separate jail expansion plans. 
Um, this in, in my time following local politics in, in L.A., I, I have to mm-hmm. say that's like one of the most uh, felt like one of the most monumental things that I've seen in terms of local politics. The, the Board of Supervisors, which, as everybody knows, um, it's very difficult to hold the five of them to account, getting them to actually say no to uh, to expanding the, the jail capacity here and commit to, to other pathways is a, a huge victory for, for, for your coalition. I just want to say thank, thank you, you and congratulations for that. And to flip in multiple cases, like it's very rare that like multiple supervisors had taken the position of supporting this new jail construction. And then your coalition got them to completely reverse themselves on it. Like that is incredibly rare, especially when it comes to uh, criminal justice issues. And I think uh, it's like a lot of people look at Jay and say like, wow, this was like a very speedily accomplished reaction to the recent protests. And like, it's true, like you're saying that gave it a lot of extra momentum and like got it over the line, but it built off of so, so, so much work. Yeah. So it was already kind of in place and you, you, you all were just ready for when this momentum came, right? Yeah. It, I mean... And just if I could, Scott, touch a little bit about what you asked around the sheriff. Uh, I, I do I do agree with that point that you made because he himself has showed how unnecessary, right. you know, their budgets are, how unnecessary the department <laughs> is, if I could say. Because when COVID-19 yeah. started, there was a he did a press conference where he was like, look, we're going to stop arresting 300 people every day and just go down to 60. Just arbitrarily deciding yeah. that, you know, and it's like, well, <laughs> could you have just done that from the get go? And so I think COVID-19 has really highlighted that in particular. But um, I mean, yeah, it's it's been a wild, wild to see how all the things that we've been calling for, especially how we've been calling how harmful this department is, is now in the light and everybody's faces. Yeah, he's basically like running a campaign for your measure. Um, yeah. Uh, through his actions that you don't have to pay for at all. So let's talk about you. You have the, the most of progressive and liberal like Democrat L.A. Uh, politicians and organizations lined up in favor of Yes on Jay, with one exception, which is the L.A. Fed, uh, the Federation of Labor, extremely powerful in L.A. politics. Uh, this week announced officially, we've been hearing this for a while, but the, they announced that they are coming out with a no on Jay. Uh, talk about what uh, labor is, or, or the Fed specifically, is considering in, in taking this position. Great. So I'll start off by saying that I've grown up in a union household. It's the only reason why I think we, you know, I had steady housing growing up and also because I had health care. Like, other than mm-hmm. that, we wouldn't have access to it. So I'm, I'm coming from that lens and still part of a union household. What I think about, you know, the labor Fed coming out no uh, and what has driven some of that, I mean, I think that choice is antithetical to their members. When you think about who are the first responders, nurses, doctors, when you think about the people, you know, when we talk about alternatives to incarceration, that for us means building out a new system of preventative and supportive services, life-affirming responses and services made up of social workers, healthcare workers, doctors. That's what we imagine. And a lot of those are members. Um, when we think mm-hmm. about creating free transportation, 
part of that membership. What, even in the language of the measure, it says in, increase jobs around capital projects that will actually lead to the construction of the infrastructure of a decentralized system of care. All those are jobs. And that's yeah. the very intention of Measure J is to create sustainability for folks in our communities who haven't had it before in a real way in union jobs. And I can't tell you what's driving the building trades to go against this. Uh, but I know mm-hmm. that it has to do with a lot. And I don't and I can't tell you what's driving a lot of the feds, uh, you know, know on this. But it, what we can tell you is that the associations representing law enforcement has been putting a lot of pressure on these unions. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know what, you know, the uh, like ALADS has told these unions. I'm not sure what the. That's the deputies. That's, uh, yeah, that's the, the sheriff's deputies union. ALADS. Yeah. Yes. And I, I'm not sure what they're telling them. They're scaring them. But if folks, folks actually read the measure, it talks about line by line increasing the access to jobs, especially unionized jobs. And one of the biggest points we heard that they were upset about was that we cut their bargaining process because of how fast this went through the process and we didn't reach out to them to have a conversation about it. What I could tell you is these these three weeks on getting this on the ballot wasn't like, you know, we didn't reach out to everybody. It was about how do we convince these five people to do it? Mm-hmm. But we recognized that folks needed to be a part of the table. So within the language is this line of this measure must include an, an, a transparent and inclusive implementation process. So bargaining for jobs, bargaining for benefits, that's all still there. But I think the labor Fed is failing their membership by taking this decision. And it's completely antithetical to supporting the people who are suffering the most right now because of COVID-19 and fiscal uncertainty, which is a lot of their membership as well. But I'm also going to add that you're also seeing the unions that for a lot of their a lot of their membership are the black, brown, indigenous communities that are dying at disproportionate rates of COVID-19 are the ones that we've traditionally not invested in. For example, like Unite Here, their their membership represents my loved ones, but they Mm -hmm. support this measure because they know how critically important it is to get healthcare and supportive services in our communities. Also the Southwest Carpenters Union, um, also, you know, the Roofers Union. These are folks that understand that for their membership, uh, it's going to help them thrive and get the, you know, necessary housing, uh, job support and all the things that, you know, are going to make them be able to survive what's happening with COVID-19 because we can't go back to status quo before COVID-19. Our communities were barely surviving. Houselessness was still a crisis. Like after COVID-19, we need to be better off. And so that's going to require a fight and it's going to require permanent transformational change, especially with our limited resources, which is what Measure J does. It gives us a shot to start off not at zero, you know, uh, and just to add that, you know, budget advocacy every single year we fight for crumbs County community mm-hmm. advocates fight for crumbs. We're starting at zero. Oftentimes we're told, especially during this jail fight, we were told there's no money for alternatives. The board created an ATI fund. There's no money in it because they yeah. couldn't be pushed to move it in there, even though we've been pushing this whole budget cycle. So I just think when people say this is ballot box, ballot box budgeting, it doesn't take into account all the countless of black, brown, indigenous and low income folks that never even get to have access to community advocacy for the budget. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think. That's absolutely right on. And um, and in a lot of ways, throughout not just in L.A. either, throughout the state, we've um, we've found ourselves forced to do that because so much of our, our funding goes to uh, to to policing, to, to things like this, that we end up not having enough left over to fund school, not having enough to, to fund community services and, and exactly what you're talking about. I am curious. Um, uh, as you were talking about the the difficulty of of trying to secure positive outcomes for, in, in particular, Black and Indigenous communities uh, out of the budget process, 
um, I think for a lot of people, the most recent major ballot or, or new tax initiative that they'll remember from the, the county level was when we had this, the joint city and county uh, H and HHH funding for uh, for homelessness. And of course, most of the stories about that have been about that we're not getting as much, voters aren't getting as much mm -hmm. as they originally thought that they were going to get. I'm curious if that experience uh, shaped at all what you were looking for with Jay or um, I guess just in general, how are you, how are you or how are the voters going to hold um, the, the county accountable to delivering the outcomes that they're promising us? Great. Thank you for bringing that up. And, you know, once we've, I feel like in policy world, you kind of learn from your previous, you know, endeavors. And so we've definitely learned off of what's happened with the different measures around HHH and H and this is different, though. If you look at the coalition that's supporting this measure, you'll see that it represents over 100 people working on a spectrum of issues. So you have folks who are working on houselessness crisis, but then you have folks who are working to stop the expenditure on building new jails and actually build out alternatives to incarceration. So this coalition is much more holistic in its vision, and which also has helped us generate much more power than I think previous initiatives have been able to develop. And one thing that we're also working on now we have a, a steering committee and one of the working groups is our policy working group where we have over 25 organizations throughout LA County working on drafting how this measure could be fair, like fairly implemented and where community could have a process in, you know, democratic budgeting processes. So we're talking about that. We're not waiting for it to be implemented. We're setting the roots for that now and also having conversations with the board about it now so they can start thinking and we can start creating and imagining what that actually looks like in a way where everybody can have a seat at the table and we can hold accountable like these dollars. Unlike other funds, I mean, especially being a part of this annual budget process, I can tell you that no other piece of the budget has a magnifying glass on them like Measure J does. Measure J has mm -hmm. a, like, a, like a magnifying glass where we're, we have the time and the, cap, the capacity to hold accountable those dollars, unlike any other fund that exists today. That's amazing to hear. Uh, it's a huge county. Uh, there's uh, 10 million people in LA County. This is a huge uh, political effort to, uh, to 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 get people to vote yes on this. Um, it's 50 percent, right? It's not uh, it's not two thirds. You just have to get a simple majority. Yeah. Okay, thank um, God. Right, <laughs> the two thirds. Uh, ones. <laughs> so, uh, what can people do? Obviously, there's a lot of work going on, like around the, the November 3rd election already. What if people are excited about trying to help uh, Jay go through? What can they do? There's three things that they could do, and I hope that they do do. Uh, the first one is we have phone banks that are being run by the campaign, also by coalitions like the Justice LA Coalition. So if you look online, you'll be able to see the phone bank registrations. We're we're we time is not our friend. October mm -hmm. 5th is when ballot initiatives are supposed to be in people's homes. This initiative got on the ballot a, a couple of months ago. There's people who have been working on their ballots and propositions over a year now. So they have raised the resources to put out a huge campaign. And that leads me to my other point that I hope people donate. A lot of the big donations that we've gotten have come from the Bay Area. We haven't seen the mm -hmm. same investment at the L.A. County or L.A. City level. So I urge people to donate. And I urge people to tell 10 people that they need to vote for Measure J and to follow our social media so that they get the FAQs. 
this measure will be at the very end of our ballot because it's a local measure. And so it's mm. also urging people to not just vote for the, you know, you know, for the federal level stuff, oh, but make yeah. it all the way to the end because it's the local yeah. things that could almost impact your life in an instantaneous way. So I, that's what I urge people is to donate, to volunteer phone bank, and to make sure they tell 10, at least 10 to 100 people that they need to vote yes on this because time is not our friend and we need to let as many people know as possible about it. I think also just to underline the the national significance, you know, we talked about how, for example, this week, Minneapolis, like, said they, they were going to defund their police department. It turned out to be much harder. They might have needed a ballot measure. Some of the council members kind of backpedaled. Now they said they wish they hadn't said that, things like that. Um, this is our chance to really lead the nation in, like you said, the biggest county larger than half of the states in the mm-hmm. United States. Um, so even just to tell that story, if you are someone on social media that say has a lot of followers or, you know, really like getting the attention for it, I haven't seen, I've seen more stories being written about like Prop 15 or the Prop 22, when in fact, this is a monumental moment for the county and and for Los Angeles. So get that story out there, people. Yes. If I could just add, let's say you're spot on around that. Measure J, there's nothing like Measure J across the country. In no other state, no other county, this is the only one. And the biggest thing is it is that's permanent change to the Constitution, right? It makes a change in our in our budget to match our values forever beyond this board of supervisors, because who knows when we're going to get this type of synergy on the board. If you, there's a hallway in the back of the board of supervisors rooms where it has all the pictures of all the board members. And I can tell you none of them in the past would ever have done something like this. So we have to yeah. make sure people know that this is going to be this is historic. No no one else is doing it. We can lead the way in really building out a system of care for our people. That is beautiful. What a wonderful way to end our show. Thank you so much for joining us. And where? what's the URL that we should go to to send people to? Go to reimagine.la. Also, can you give us your uh, Twitter handle for our followers who want to follow you? Yes, my Twitter handle is my name, Eunices H. So that's E-U-N-I-S-S-E-S-H. Thank Thank you you so so much much for joining us. Thank you for listening to LA Podcast. Uh, We have our voter guide dropping this week, uh, right around the same time as uh, the actual ballots are dropping. And it will say yes on Jay. Thank you for listening again. Thank you to Brian Holmes for producing. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 